John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. That passage uh, was written by the Apostle John. They are his prophetic words describing a day that uh, he was actually able to see in the first century. A vision that he was given by God. But a day that hasn't still yet come. Pretty spectacular. Pretty amazing. And uh, it's my thought that after 2,000 years... It might be difficult for any of us or all of us to believe that that day is still coming. Like We may waver a little bit in our confidence. This amazing, spectacular day of a king of kings riding in supernaturally on a white horse to make war against the enemies in this world. I, I, I would understand if any of us might struggle with that question Why is it taking so long? I might continue to struggle if I didn't have the passage that we're going to study today. Unfortunately, the text that we're in in the Gospel of Luke, and uh, if you're just joining us, um, welcome. And we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 19. And the passage that we're looking at, unfortunately, is often treated as kind of a cute children's story. And uh, we usually hear about it on Palm Sunday, right? The Sunday before Easter. And it's classically known, this might even be written in your Bible, as um, the triumphal entry. And it's speaking of the entry of Jesus back into Jerusalem. Remember, we've been in a travel narrative, right, for a very, very long time. And Jesus has been making his way progressively to Jerusalem. And this passage is Jesus right at the city gates. This is no children's story. Children can understand it. But there is more here to fuel your faith and mine in a God we can trust than just about any other passage in our Bible, truly. We're going to see Jesus approach Jerusalem as a king. And this is right before his betrayal, his arrest, his humiliation, his crucifixion, And then his resurrection. 
I hope that after today that this passage will be one of the greatest sources of assurance that you have in your Bible. If you're ever wavering, wondering about days to come, I hope you'll go back to this passage again and again and again and let it feed your faith. Let it give you confidence about the work of God. That's why this passage appears in Luke's gospel. And I want to remind us, going all the way back to the very beginning, uh, Luke tells us the purpose, remember, for writing this gospel. Luke 1, 3 through 4, he writes this, It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. That was his primary audience. Certainly it was for the rest of the church. But here's why he wrote this gospel and here's why this passage is in it. That you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Just in case you ever wonder, go back to Luke 19 and read about the triumphal entry of the king. It is only the second of events that are recorded about Jesus in all four Gospels. The other is the feeding of the 5,000. You can find this same story, some different perspectives and details, but you can find them in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and John 12. Now, just a little backdrop before we actually get into the text. We are told here that this is all taking place on what's called the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives. And this is part of kind of a ridgeline, a range of mountains. Uh, None of them are more than 3,000 feet above sea level. But for that region of the world, that's a mountain, right? So uh, the Mount of Olives is directly across from Jerusalem. There's a valley that goes through there called the Kidron Valley. The whole range is about two and a half miles long and it runs north and south, somewhat parallel to Jerusalem. So that's where Jesus is coming. He's going to come up. Remember, he uh, started in Jericho. He's been making his way up to Jerusalem. He's going to go over the Mount of Olives, go down through the Kidron Valley, and then enter into the city. Not this morning, but soon. We, we actually might want to call this passage the triumphal approach. So he doesn't quite get into the city walls, but he is getting there. There's a couple of cities that are uh, mentioned here, Bethany and Bethphage. They're located on the eastern slopes of that same ridge of mountains. So you actually aren't in view, I don't think, of Jerusalem from there. You would be on the backside of the Mount of Olives. You would go over, and then you would head down into the city. The Garden of Gethsemane is located, so you can see that from Jerusalem as you're looking at the Mount of Olives. Um, That would be off kind of to the east. That, of course, a lot of significant things happened in that area, certainly Christ praying before he was arrested and then taken away. We hear about the Mount of Olives in the Old and the New Testament. So it's a a fairly common place to be referenced. The first reference is in 2 Samuel 15. King David is fleeing for his life. His son Absalom is coming back to Jerusalem to basically take over the nation of Israel, to usurp his father as king. And David 
flees for his life, and he runs straight over the Mount of Olives to get away. We also see the Mount of Olives mentioned in a number of places throughout uh, the Gospels. Um, You might say that some of the most significant moments in all of Jesus' ministry took place on that very sacred mountain. It is the place where we're told one day Jesus will return. Let's do a quick review as we're getting back into Luke. We took a a break for a few weeks. So remember again, we're coming out of Jericho. That's about 17 miles away from Jerusalem. There is a a road that winds its way up to the city of Jerusalem. Remember down in that city... There were two very significant things that took place. Do you remember? Jesus healed a blind man. We find out in other Gospels his name was Bartimaeus. And we see a rich man, Zacchaeus, come to faith and turn everything in his life and all that he has over to Christ. As he's making his way up, we're told in the Gospel of John, and this is important to, to sort of harmonize the Gospels, because sometimes things will get left out of one, they're included in another, but it, it sort of helps make uh, sense in the larger story. Um, somewhere along the way, as Jesus was making his way up there, he stopped by Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. Now, we don't get that story in the Gospel of Luke, but it is in uh, John 11. I'm sorry, yeah, John 11. And uh, it's interesting, when he gets to Bethany and he does that, we're told that the Pharisees set out to kill Jesus. Like, that was the final straw. They were going after him and they were going to take him out. And we're told in John that Jesus took a a little bit of a detour before actually entering into Jerusalem. This is in John 11, 54. It says, Jesus therefore no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to, to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. So from Bethany, Jesus and his disciples would have gone north through Bethphage, and beyond to this region called Ephraim. That's where he is when we pick up our story for today. So just trying to give you a frame of reference for where the disciples are located. So pick up in verse 28, and uh, Luke writes this. When he, that is Jesus, had said these things, referring to the teaching that we had a few weeks ago, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem, still making his way up. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village that is in front of you, most likely Bethphage, where on entering you will find a colt tied, and on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away, so those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. That'll be a significant phrase we'll look at in just a moment. 
The first thing that jumps off the page, I think, in this introduction to this segment is that King Jesus exercises authority over people and possessions. That's what kings do, right? Now, we don't necessarily understand that very well, living in a republic where there's democracy and we elect uh, you know, people in office, all that kind of thing. So the idea of a sovereign king who literally can do anything he wants to with anything he wants That's just a foreign idea to us, isn't it? It's it's just hard to rationalize that. But Jesus is acting like a king. Notice the details. He is orchestrating something here. We don't quite know what it is yet. He's putting things in place to accomplish something. and, And we're going to assume that it's according to divine design. That everything that he's doing there here has a purpose. Again, it's not just a cute little story that we can kind of celebrate with waving palms, right? It's, it's far more significant than that. He specifically assigns two disciples. He sends them. He doesn't have a little discussion. He doesn't ask their opinion. Hey, would you like to go into town and grab something for me? He just sends them. He sends them to a specific village. And it has to be the right village because there's a specific animal that they're supposed to find. And they're going to find him in a specific place and in a specific way. This animal is going to be tied. It's going to be kind of connected to the place where, uh, where it is owned. Apparently, it's going to never have been ridden. For some reason, that's important. And then it's going to be commandeered. The the disciples aren't going to go up and knock on the door and say, Hey, we were just wondering. I mean, we saw this colt out here and and our master told us that it might be available. Is Is it okay? Would that be all right? They just go up and start untying the colt. And if nobody would have said anything, they just would have walked right out of town with it. But the owner says, Ho, 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 wait a minute. Well, what are you doing? Why are you untying that colt? Look at their answer. The Lord has need of it. And apparently, that's a good enough reason. I mean, certainly it is because they they come away with it and deliver it to Jesus. But but it's really important that as we see this, this thing coming together, Jesus is acting like a king. And if he wants a cult, he can have it. If he wants to send somebody somewhere, he can send them. Whatever he wants to do, he can do because he is the king. It reminded me of Psalm 24.1. Powerful, powerful words that David wrote centuries before Jesus ever walked the earth. He writes this, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof. That essentially means everything. And then just in case you're wondering if it means everything, he goes on to say, the world and those who dwell therein. Why? Why does he have right to literally everything in and around and on and of the earth? Why does he have that right? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it Upon the rivers. He made it all. Therefore he has rights to it all. 
just like the king of kings. Now, what we're going to find here is that everything went just as Jesus said it would. And that is really interesting. As we get into these final days of Christ's life, it will look at times like things are spinning out of control, like things are happening to him. And what we need to remember is he's the king, and he causes everything to happen exactly as it should. And and it's all for great purpose. It's not just sort of God is rolling the dice and hoping that this all turns out okay. This is why he came. Now let me ask you a quick application question as I think about this introduction and how this thing is coming together. And I want to hone in on that phrase, the Lord has need of it. And honestly, for my own life, I I was thinking, okay, well, what if, just what if, The Lord just kind of appeared right in front of me and said, Hey, Monty, I have need of you. What would I say? What would I do? Would there be any hesitation? Would I want to sort of negotiate? Would I want to kind of think through, what exactly are you asking of me? I'm not sure if I'm able. I'm not sure if I have the resources. I I just, gosh, I mean, look what time it is. I got stuff going on. I'm very busy. Or would I just literally drop everything and said, the Lord is calling? (laughs) That's what happens here. And so let's ask that question. How attentive, how available, and how responsive are you to the directions, the directives of your king? Now, this Bible is Full, full of commands. I mean, tons of it. Not suggestions. They're things that the king has called us to do. I I don't have time to go through all of them. None of us do. But here's what I know. The king has spoken. The king has called. And he has need of you. I don't know exactly what it looks like. I don't know what he wants from you. I know that his need isn't because he has some kind of deficiency. Like he's just overwhelmed and stressed out by all that has to be done. I know that he has an opportunity for you to be a part of a redemptive plan that spans all of human history. And so when he says he has need of you, he's saying... I want to give you an opportunity of a lifetime. It's an invitation that you and I can respond to. Let's keep moving. Verse 35. Those disciples that were sent and got the colt, it says they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and he was drawing near, as he was drawing near, already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, remember, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Here's what they said. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, it's like Jesus is done orchestrating and his plan is starting to come together. And the message is loud and clear. The king is coming. Like there's no mistake about that. But it begs a response. Now, point two in your outline, King Jesus accepts praise reserved only for God. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, oh, oh, wait a minute, guys. I mean, come on, don't get crazy here. Don't, don't get over the top. Don't get overly excited. I'm, I mean, this is a big day. But no, he totally receives every bit of it. In fact, everything that he has done was designed to provoke that response. He intended for them to see him as king. They intended for, he intended for them to treat him as king. No question about it. Now, specifically with regards to the donkey, he is fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. Which is interesting. That prophecy predicted that the Messiah would approach Jerusalem on a donkey. How about that? 500 years before the day that Jesus is sitting on a donkey heading into town. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's interesting that the disciples respond exactly as they're instructed to in Zechariah. Zechariah knew that that was the appropriate way to respond to a king. Now, it is interesting. Um, I, I have always sort of thought about Jesus entering the, the city to, to accomplish something. Certainly, he did by laying down his life. But I want to hone in on that idea of a king. Kings don't come into a city to conquer. They come into a city because they've already conquered. So as he's entering the city, it's appropriate for them to celebrate, to do all that they're doing, because the fact that he is there signals that God's plan is as good as done. He is the conquering king that is returning to Jerusalem just as was predicted. So they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They are also quoting Psalm 118, which says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So they're celebrating a king, the king. We also know that because they begin to throw their cloaks on the ground. Um, just make a note of this, 2 Kings 9.13. There is an instance um, in earlier in uh, Israel's history where uh, a man was made king by God to essentially correct the wicked uh, kings of Israel. His name was Jehu. And um, he was sort of resistant, but he embraced it. 
And as he was coming out of his dwelling, it says that every man of them, so all of the people around him who were essentially installing him as the new king of Israel, it says each of them took his garment and put it under Jehu on the bare steps under his feet, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. That's exactly what's happening here. Now we got to wonder, how did the disciples know? How did they know that Jesus was the king? That he wasn't an imposter? That's one of the things about this. Is like, if a guy says he's king, he either is or he isn't. He can't kind of be king. I, th- this is either true or it's not. So how do they know? We're told in the text that they had observed mighty works. So think about context. Let's go back to Jericho. What did they see there? They saw Jesus do two impossible things. Remember? Give sight to a blind man and convert the heart of a rich man, both of which were considered impossible for everyone but God. Then he makes his way up to Bethany and he raises a dead man from the grave, Lazarus. So three impossible things, all of which testify to the unique identity of Christ as king, the one who has rights to everything, anytime, anywhere. Make no mistake, Jesus very purposefully presents himself as king. As the Messiah that was promised to Israel. He's doing a lot of things here very purposefully. These guys know their Old Testament. So they are aware of what's happening. And they just have to decide. Is this the guy or not? And if they decide that he is. Then they know how to respond to a king. And if he isn't. Then they'll do away with him. Which... Strangely, they will do in just a matter of days. There's, there's two other interesting items here that uh, aren't just obvious in the text, but as you study the passage, you begin to discover some other supports for uh, Jesus making a case that he is king. The prophet Ezekiel had a vision, and uh, the two chapters you'll want to make note of are Ezekiel 10 and 43. Uh, in Ezekiel 10, this is after Israel has been judged completely wicked. And we're told that the glory of the Lord departed from Israel. And we're given a specific location. The glory of the Lord exits the city of Israel through the eastern gate. Okay? In 43, Ezekiel writes that the Messiah will return, the glory of the Lord will return to Israel, and guess where it is going to enter the city? The eastern gate. Now, you already know what's going to happen here. Where do you think Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem? Right through the eastern gate. That's actually a picture of it, that kind of pronounced part of the wall there, that is the eastern gate. You may notice that it is completely bricked up. It's closed. 
that was done by followers of Islam because they knew of the prediction that the Messiah, Jesus, would return through that gate. So how hard do you think it's going to be for Jesus to get through there? I I don't think he's going to have a problem. But again, Jesus is doing everything with purpose. He is entering into the city from the place that he is to communicate something, to let them know that he is who he says he is. Lastly, and I'll hit this very quickly, the prophet Daniel has a little segment in chapter 9 of his Old Testament book. And in there, he predicts uh, a series of weeks that represent God's redemptive timeline over a very long period of time. It's called uh, Daniel's 70 Weeks. Let me read this to you, and then we're going we're gonna to think through this together, beginning in verse 24 of chapter 9. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression. This was a vision given to Daniel for the people of Israel. To finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. All of this is dealing with the place of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Verse 27. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Now I know that that probably makes next to no sense, so I'm going to just simplify. There's a lot of math going on right there. So here's the big idea of this prophecy. uh, Israel was destroyed and taken into captivity, right? That's where Daniel is when he is writing this prophecy. And so God promises to return his people to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city, to reestablish the temple. And that's going to be a part of his redemptive plan to ultimately fulfill his promises to his people. Okay? That's a long, very long process. In this passage, it's basically 70 weeks, which are actually days of years um, over the course of 70. So it's it's 490 years. Um, That chart up there shows you to the far left. Do you remember when it said um, the going out of the word to restore the building of Jerusalem. So there was a, a ruler 
that announced he was going to allow the city of Jerusalem to be rebuilt. That was Artaxerxes. That was in 444 B.C. 69 weeks later, according to the way we're talking about weeks and years and all that, 69 weeks to the day, guess where Jesus is? On a donkey, heading back into Jerusalem to be, as the prophecy says, cut off for the good of his people. So, again, the people of Israel would have recognized there is this unfolding plan that God is about. And this moment isn't just Jesus deciding, I'm going to be king. I've kind of surveyed the land. I've looked at everybody around here. I've looked at what's going on with Rome and everything else. And I'm going to go ahead and step in and take over and be king. He is fulfilling a 490-year plan that God is accomplishing. Now, we can't go into this this morning, but there is a remaining week that's hanging out there. So this was 69 weeks. There's one more week. We're in what's called the church age, and that is between the 69th week and the 70th week. The 70th week is the week of, or the year of, years of tribulation, and at the end of that, Christ will return once again. Remember at the beginning, I said, you know, it's kind of hard to imagine that a day out there somewhere is coming since we've waited so long. Let this be an encouragement to you that Jesus ended up at the exact place he needed to be, right on schedule, according to God's design, over the course of 490 years. Let that be an encouragement to your faith. Um, Looking again at the response of the people that were around Jesus, let me ask you this question. They're singing praises to God. And I'm not getting into performance here, so please don't get get confused, okay? Um, The idea is they responded to God's king like a reflex. It was just like, this is my savior. This is my deliverer. This is my only hope. So here's my question for you. Does your praise... Is it consistent with that kind of perspective? Are you inhibited somehow? And and I'm just asking you to ask the question, what might hold you back? And again, I'm not talking about a big sensational display. I'm just saying whatever would be natural for you in terms of praise for your king, what's the gap between what that would be and what it is? Is your praise fitting for the king described in this passage? Well, lastly, uh, King Jesus insists that his exaltation is inevitable. So in other words, whether we praise him or not, he will be praised. He will receive worship, and he's worthy of it, every bit of it. There were some Pharisees standing around, we're told in verse 39, and some of them said, Teacher! Rebuke your disciples. So that tells us a couple of things. First of all, they don't believe that Jesus is worthy of that praise. They know exactly what that praise means to the people who are giving it. 
Like they are treating Jesus like the Messiah. And so they tell Jesus, hey, you're not the Messiah, so tell them to stop. Look at what Jesus says. I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Creation itself can't help itself. And Jesus will never, ever decline worship because he's worthy of it. Daryl Bach, a professor at DTS, says, Creation is aware of Jesus, but the leadership of the nation is not. That which is lifeless knows life when it sees it, even though that which is living does not. Here's a reality for all of us um, as we think about this passage and applying it to our lives. Everything is ultimately subject to the supreme authority of the Lord. Everything. And our submission doesn't change the fact of who Jesus is. It honestly just affects us. It doesn't affect him. (laughs) It affects us. And uh, in your notes, willing submission, we're told, leads to blessing. So it's not only as if Jesus is saying, worship me because I deserve it. That's true. He's saying, worship me because that will bless your life like you could never imagine. It's for your good to worship the king as he deserves. So willing submission leads to blessing. Insurrection leaves one in ruin. If you and I choose to be silent in terms of our response to the king, it leaves us in ruin. Whatever freedom we have is allowed under the ultimate rule of God. So God is going to accomplish whatever he wants. There's no possible way for us to thwart his ultimate uh, will. But our choices are very real. They have very real consequences in the here and now. And so we can choose blessing or ruin. And we're either aligned with or aligned against the king in terms of how we live day in and day out. You remember uh, Luke eleven twenty three. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is what? Against me. There's no middle ground. We, we have to ask ourselves every day, am I walking with the Lord in alignment with him or am I walking in opposition to his will as my king? want to uh, finish in terms of our so what, I want to ask you one final question to consider in response to this passage. So I hope that you're seeing here, there, there is no question. I guess, so if I asked you today before you came in, if I said, do you think Jesus is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? You probably would have said yes. I'm, I'm guessing. But our answer really gets put to the test when life just literally falls apart and things aren't going our way. That's when people eject on their faith. Because now the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, He isn't making my life everything that I want it to be. So is He our King because He makes our life what we want it to be? Or is He just our King?
who has saved us from the eternal consequence of our sin if we will only trust in him. So in light of that, in light of who he is, are you living in submission to or rejection of the supreme authority of Christ, our King? He has authority. Have you placed yourself under it? And I mean very practically. When you get up in the morning, I mean, what if you quoted Psalm 24? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I'm the Lord's, I'm in his world. And whatever he bids of me today, I will do. I'll do it with gladness because I know that's what's best for me. What, what if you started your day that way and then you let him lead you through it as he pleases, not as you please? Take a moment and just, just think about that question. I think that's what we're invited to do here is to not only see him as king, but orient ourselves to him in light of his role. Take a moment, prayerfully consider that, and then I'll pray. Jesus, we praise you today, and you are worthy of it. Lord, I pray that you would align our hearts with that reality, that we would not imagine even for a minute that we are captains of our own ship. Lord, we make a lot of choices. You give us a lot of freedom, but ultimately, we stand under your authority. So I pray that that would be a joyful place for us to be, that we would gladly submit everything to you and invite you to call upon us, to send us, and to use us for the glory of God until you return. I thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.